This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, and welcome to The Great Indoors, our podcast that will tell you everything that's going on in interiors and how to make it work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And we're so excited to be doing this first episode because we've been talking about doing a podcast for so long and now we're finally doing it. Hello again, lovely listeners. Oh my goodness. It's not actually the first episode, but due to lockdown, we are back in our duvet dens. And you just heard time-travelling Kate Watson-Smythe and I all the way from 2018. That was a clip of our very first podcast episode. And don't be so nervous. Oh, but we were so full of ideas and enthusiasm and quite a lot of terror. So much terror. But in the two years since this show started, it has become our happy place. The terror is gone, although hopefully you'll agree the enthusiasm and ideas are still in plentiful supply and we can't wait to share everything we've got lined up for next year. But for now, this is the last episode of the current series. And as we may have mentioned once or twice or 20,000 times, we recently topped 1 million downloads. So it seemed like a good time to take a small breather and a look back at how far we've come. That plus the fact that this year is quite frankly crying out for a bit of comforting nostalgia. So this episode is a bit of a different beast. Essentially, it's Kate and I flicking back over old episodes and remembering more innocent times when we were fresher-faced and Kate still disapproved of feature walls and, well, didn't like yellow. We can discuss that in more detail in the next series. However, the festive season is looming, so we thought how better to round off the series and the year than with something truly traditional. And what could be more traditional than a flaming row? Now, Disagreements have been a big part of the show over the last couple of years, so we've collected some of our favourites, sort of like a lovely box of really cross-quality street, just for you. Moving on from Ted and his squelchy socks, or rather (laughs) my squelchy socks and Ted's top tips, to... Open plan spaces, the next one in our series. Very fashionable, aren't they, open plan spaces? It seems everybody's having their walls knocked down to create these open plan kitchen, dining, living rooms. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think when you've got small children, everybody wants to take the walls down so they can keep an eye on their small children. And then their children get bigger, as mine are, and you just really want to put those walls (laughs) back up again. (laughs) I think it's probably also, though, well, I know it is for me, about not being isolated on my own in the kitchen. I mean, as if I was ever going to cook anyway, but if I was taken to cooking everybody dinner you know I think the woman of the house doesn't want to be down one end of the and you've led me into my stat fact oh more stat girl is back (laughs) I need a special outfit you need a jingle as well I I think think, don't I I need a jingle for my stat girl so flank flank (laughs) (laughs) not gonna work this is what happens so open plan living's actually been around for a really long time. The architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, who did Falling Water, those famous American buildings. So he was really prominent in the 30s. And he was one of the first people to advocate open plan living. And that was actually based around the idea of the kitchen as a central hub in the house with the other spaces leading off it. And the idea was apparently so that the housewife, because let's face it, that's who it was back then, uh, was more of a hostess in her own home rather than a kitchen mechanic behind closed doors. That's hit the nail on the head, isn't it? So it's about creating these spaces where we can eat, dine, sit and relax, essentially all be together. But where you're knocking down walls, you are creating lots of design dilemmas. So one of the biggies is that people ask me is what flooring should they put in the open plan space and can it be more than one different type of floor? So I, I think suppose- that's crucial that it is. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
you? you I do. You need one more than one type of floor. Yes. In your, what, okay. Well, because I think that's how you would zone it. Absolutely. You might want a tiled floor in the kitchen area and some floorboards in the dining bit, which actually you could carry through to the sitting bit, but you need a rug over them. So I think you need different flooring. Why are you frowning at me? She's frowning at me. Really frowning. Okay, really? so my argument is oh. I think you need. I think the, the key word here is argument, <laughs> not flooring. <laughs> I'm just getting a little bit this smaller in my I chair. But everything you've said about my house, <laughs> it's all the white paint. <laughs> So I would argue that you want the same flooring throughout your open plan space, really to give cohesion, continuity and flow. If only you could think of another word beginning with C. <laughs> See, it would be in there. It would be in there. Um, and then the way I would zone the space would be to use rugs. So I'd say it's practical to have a hardwood floor in the kitchen because of kitchen mess and spills and everything like that. So wood or tiles. And then I'd probably think about throwing, if, if it was a large enough space, not all open plan spaces are large. In fact, some of the smallest open plan spaces are in little flats because it's yes. greedy developers trying to make a one bedroom flat into a two bedroom flat and then basically making the kitchen and living room the one same. room. Yeah. So I think if you have got small open plan spaces, having lots of different floor joins can clutter up a space visually. So one floor and then a nice big rug in the living area to zone the fact that this is a living area and you need something softer underfoot. Do you know the thing I think that looks really nice, though, if you do have different types of flooring is not having a hard line between the two. And I've seen it coming through. You need a very patient a toilet. You're not going to have a wavy edge, are you? Well, it's not... Uh... <laughs> I think I think this may be the end of this series. <laughs> Titanic falling out. It's not a wavy edge. What I was going to say was because hexagonal tiles, for example, oh, okay. are quite fashionable. Yes. yes so I know rather than having this. a hard stop mm-hmm. between the kitchen and the dining room, is you could sort of flow out the tiles. So you have a sort of jagged edge. I'm not saying wavy. No, no, that's quite but nice. You're sort of bleeding one type of flooring into another, which leads you from one space to another and it's not a hard stop. So you could go from your, your tiles into your wood. You wouldn't want yes. to do that with carpet. In fact, no. I just don't think car- fitted carpet doesn't have a place in an open plan. Room, no, I think it's I really argue. difficult. I think it's bedrooms only, yeah. actually. Um, so if you want a carpet feel, go for a rug. But that can be, as you say, is a really good way of zoning it. And I always say you need to buy the biggest rug you can afford. And that's completely true when it comes to an open plan space. Because ideally what you want there is a rug on which all the sitting room furniture yeah. fits. So you're creating that idea. A room idea within a room almost, exactly. isn't it? It yeah. doesn't actually have solid walls, but you can very clearly see the demarcation zone between the sitting area and the eating area. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of flooring, actually, I think if you're planning an open plan renovation, it might be an extension. You're you're putting yeah. some extra space on the ground floor to enable you to have this open plan space. Really, really, really consider underfloor heating because getting radiators positioned in a... As a, a nightmare, as a Yes, that's true. And also because yeah. they tend to be bigger, you can end up with quite chilly zones where there aren't radiators. So having underfloor heating throughout your open plan space will just create a lovely, warm, even heat. Throughout. And the other thing I think which people don't do very often, but you need to do in an open plan space is be able to have various bits of furniture turn their back on each other. There's a okay. real tendency to have the furniture sort of around the edges or or have the seating area facing the dining room table and that doesn't zone it. So actually if you've got a dining area at one end and you can do this in a Victorian house where you've just got one of those long thin sitting rooms with a knock through for example which isn't so much open plan as just sort of long two thin rooms room, in one. two rooms in one you know have a piece of furniture like your sofa going across the middle that's or, where a, an L shape or modular sofa works really well exactly that or, or have your sofa with its back to the table so it psychologically gives you the feeling that there are different rooms yeah I think that's really important creating different zones within the space so as we say we can do it with rugs you can do it with the positioning of the furniture Another nice way to do it is with your lighting. I was just... Every time. (laughs) You've got to be quicker than that. So, yeah, so some drop pendant lighting can help annotate different zones, can't it? So some pendant lighting over the kitchen island, maybe one over the dining table. You could even drop one over your coffee table or footstool too and it just means that different things coming down from the ceiling helps visually just mark out different areas or even and you always need lighting on different circuits don't you but you could 
even in shorthand, say you can have sort of spotlights in the kitchen bit, a pendant light over the dining room table and a couple of floor lamps on your massive rug and your seating area. So you've got three different sorts of lighting in the three different areas. I think lighting in in open plan spaces actually becomes quite complicated. I know we've covered this in a previous podcast, the crime of doing blanket down lighters in a grid, but never more of a crime, I think, in an open plan space. You really don't want that sort of aircraft lounge lit, bright light kind of feeling. So really important to position your spot strategically over the island, over the coffee table, over the dining table, not in a grid everywhere. Yeah, and maybe don't even have any in your seating area. And I'm going to get in quick before you steal my line again. Open plan spaces, you can use plants and bookcases to zone as well. So you can get those bookcases, I think they're from Ikea, which are like like room dividers. Yeah, exactly. Put them like a room divider or just have a couple of big plants, again, zoning your seating area so that you're just creating a different feel between the different spaces. So really big house plants, like yeah. those lovely big giant fig trees and things like that you get. They yeah. sort of soften it because I think the other thing with open plan is they can, again, we're talking about on the larger scale of things, but they tend to have big glassy bifold doors. Everything gets a bit hard. And I mean, I've already told you you've got a head of hardwood flooring and not loud carpet. So it can all get a bit hard and echoey. And plants can help and with that. And also and if you've furnishings. got no walls, you haven't got anywhere to put either wall lights or pictures. So you need some other form of decor so you've got to have floor lights or big floor plants or things that you know help create sort of the idea of walls because actually technically it would be called broken plan living this idea that you would have different zones within one space but you break it up perhaps by having a different level or a half wall going across the space and Mm. you could put a lamp on top of that or using plants or different levels won't go into different flooring, but you're keeping the light flowing and the sense of space, but you have got sort of half barriers yeah. between the spaces to It's not to too hard it. to do. In my last flat when we lived in Brighton, we were in a warehouse conversion, which was great. It was very open plan, but our kitchen was a step higher yeah. than the rest of the space. And yes, I could stand in my kitchen and see everybody, but it just felt a little bit separate because it was yeah. a step up from the ground floor, which was quite a nice touch. Now, another really big problem that people have about open plan spaces is what colour to paint the walls. Clearly and... not white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously not white. I mean, I think general rule of thumb, you have to be quite careful about feature walls in an open plan space because they can just look distracting, a bit disparate you know just sort of why just look a bit random don't they look a bit random so unless again architecturally it makes sense there's an alcove or there's Mm. a little piano music corner or something that makes sense that you're marking it out in a different color of wallpaper then I think you're best to probably pop your color in your rugs and your sofas and your artwork or your kitchen island or I think that's absolutely true but there are ways you can do it I think because we also have this very traditional idea that you know you must cover one wall in one colour. But there's nothing to stop you doing two walls across a corner yeah, in a dark so colour. Like paint a corner and Paint a corner. So yeah. you're sort of zoning that as your seating area or potentially your yeah. dining but area. But it needs to be for a reason. That's it needs to have thing, a reason. And there's another, I've got a client who's moved into that, the wonderful Hoover building, that very famous sort of 1930s Art Deco building on the North Circular. In London. Um, in London. So her, again, she has an open one room for those three things, dining, sitting, cooking, but it's got pillars in to support, which I think is probably quite common, isn't it? It's holding the ceiling up. Um, So what we've done there is painted the wall behind the dining room table in navy blue to zone that dining room area, but she's done the two pillars in it as well. So it's not a wall, but you're sort of creating something a bit continuous and helping zone it. So the idea is you don't have to paint the whole wall in one colour. You can you know, just I've paint seen, a section. You can do a triangle. So Kate's it, doing lots of gesticulating with her hands now, listeners. I'm painting triangles <laughs> on walls. We will find an image um, of this and pop it up on our blog. Yeah, absolutely. You know, don't just be constrained by there's a square wall, I must paint it in a square block of that colour. Use your paint like you use your floor to zone the space. And if you want to stop halfway across or down or over a wall, then, you know, you can. There endeth the lesson on jazzy walls. I love it. (laughs) One last little uh, tip I think worth mentioning. I mean, this is something I bang on a lot about anyway, but when you've, particularly when you've got your kitchen in an open plan space, your kitchen shouldn't look too kitcheny. Absolutely. In my argument, this is where you don't want lots of glossy white wall units and fitted units looking quite 
Unless yeah, it's open shelving, isn't it? You yeah. just got to domesticate your kitchen a little bit and make it yeah. feel softer. You know, some open shelving, maybe with some books in, you know, some plants, like you say, popped up on the shelves. Just soften the look of the kitchen so it integrates with the rest of the space. Well, I think you're going to two extremes. You're either doing that and you're having a kitchen that looks like furniture yeah. on which you could cook in a room. Bit or something. Or you've got to go really high-tech industrial and contrast it with, you'll like this, your velvet chintzy sofa just a few feet away so you I think you but you've got to go to one extreme or the other you can't have a sort of ordinary white glossy kitchen I think you you've got to really say you know we live in this open plan warehouse and we've got a high-tech kitchen and a sort of country kitchen sofa next to each other and create that tension juxtaposition oh I love that word drop it in wherever I can makes it sound dead intelligent Oh, you can always rely on me for my intelligent insights. Hmm. For what it's worth, I still think I was right about flooring in an open plan space. Yes, well, that is a surprise. Anyway, that was back in episode two of series two. As it happens, the scene of another great moment when I was definitely right. The eagle-eared among you may have even spotted a few clues and references during the previous clip, because this, dear listeners, is when I banned white paint. So, come on then, Kate. White paint. What's your argument? Well, I'm banning. I'm banning white paint. It's quite a radical thing to do, isn't it? Um, I'm not banning it completely, but I think we should think more about when it should be used. Where I would quite like to ban it is on woodwork and ceilings. Oh my God, that's like every house in I the know. land. I, I, you know. <laughs> and you're talking about pure brilliant white. Is this, because there's whites and whites. There's whites and whites, aren't is there? This, yes. Is this a particular shade Well, it's of that white? basic brilliant white, okay. but it's a bit like you said way back in series one, how you felt that grey paint had become the default colour. I don't know what colour to paint it, so I'll paint it in a shade of grey. And I feel a bit like that about white paint. There seems to me to be no reason why we do the woodwork in white and the ceilings in white. That's just the colour they've always been. Mm. So we have all these rooms where we've got really good now in this country about using brilliant, bold colours. Even I have, (laughs) and you clearly are. And yet we're still doing all the bits around the edges in white paint. And I'm always saying to people on the blog, you know, you must paint your skirting boards to match the wall. You must paint the radiators. So So rewind, why must people paint their woodwork? In the same colour as the walls. Well, because it makes the wall look taller. First of all, it looks really modern and contemporary if you Mm -hmm. paint it all out in the same colour, which I think is what the Georgians used to do. They used to do the doors and the woodwork and the skirtings. It was the Victorians who started doing it white for reasons I haven't actually ever been able to fathom. They're actually responsible for a whole heap of design crimes. They are the worst. We could do a whole episode on On just Victorian design crimes. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be my first thought. If you do the skirting board to match the walls, you elongate the walls, so you make the ceiling look higher. Also paint the radiators because unless they're things of beauty design radiators, they they're, really fa- are. they're fairly mm. unattractive. So paint them to match the wall. So that for me just Covers makes the room that. look better. Yeah. The ceilings, and I do have white ceilings, but they're left over. They're just, why are they white? And there doesn't seem very often to be a reason for it. And where I started thinking about this was actually we did a styling job for DFS last year Mm -hmm. and you did your walls in that very bright cobalt blue colour. That I'm obsessed with. Which is now all over your house. Yeah. um, Up to about three quarters. I mean, it was a set, but it was a nominal three quarter height. And then you did above that on the wall, the top tiny bit of the wall and the ceiling in pale pink. And for me, it was a bit of a revelation because it just made the room look so much more pulled together and thought about. So it's not about painting the ceiling dark. Quite often people say, paint the walls dark, paint the ceiling dark, paint it all dark, it will blur the edges. That sort of Abigail Ahern creating that very... Abigail Ahern is an interior designer who's real brand stamp identities is very dark interiors and there is a good point actually if you do those very dark inky hues on the walls and then you go bright white on the ceiling it looks terrible it looks too stark the contrast is too strong so if you don't want to do the whole inky 
dark black ceiling too. At least go for a mid shade. I sometimes think a mid shade. Or even colour. a very pale one because yeah. so my sitting room is very dark chocolate brown walls. So we've gone up to the picture rail. It's a Victorian house, so we have one. So it's a natural stop, but you could just create a stop at the point you wanted. And then we've gone white at the top of the wall and over the ceiling. So that does blur the edges if you is like it, it bends the white? ceiling over the walls. Now of course it's not brilliant white. <laughs> Because <laughs> you banned it already. I banned it. So, what white would you then? Well, pick I've for got that? a sort of chalky white. I've got Wimborne white by Farrow and Ball. But even I'm thinking now, it would be quite nice to have done it in a sort of really, really pale pink, yes, almost it would. so that, that you can't tell it's pink. Or if you're doing your whole room in a pale colour, then do the ceiling as well. Yeah, so I okay. Just so, so for example, if you're doing dull. a really soft pink blush colour on the walls, you could take that over exactly. the ceiling as well. I mean, I think the main reason why people go pure brilliant white on their ceilings is to try and reflect light back yeah. into the room. Now, I think this is where we're going to really burst a lot of people's bubble because I see a lot of people use pure brilliant white in dark rooms hoping that it's going to make the room feel lighter and brighter. And that's where people are going wrong. Because pure brilliant white essentially has quite a lot of blue in it. It's got a little blue tint, mm. hasn't it? It can feel really cold and quite grey in a room that doesn't and have also, a lot of And also white needs natural light to reflect yes. off, to bounce off, to make it do its job of whitening and brightening. To create the light and shade, So if it? you've got a small dark room and you paint it white, it just goes a bit sort of yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. it couldn't quite be bothered. It's very, it's very <laughs> flat and depressing. So yeah. that's really the worst place so to we're not, bright white. We're absolutely not advocating that you need to go dark, but just a little bit of a colour and wash it all over the walls, floors, not the floors. You can actually, I've got painted floorboards all over the walls and ceilings because that will do the same job of blurring the edges. The thing about painting all the woodwork, and I'm talking skirting boards, picture rails, dado rails, ceilings. Architraves. And architraves and doors, is you're, you're basically, it's like the reverse of a cartoon. Rather than everything being outlined in black, you're outlining it all in white. So you're immediately drawing the eye to the edges of the room. And if you like the confines of the space, you become very aware of the size of the room you're in. Whereas if you paint it all out in the same colour, you sort of disappears. You don't see the edges. And actually, it's a much more calming space to be in because your eyes kind of darting around. And you do them. like a calming space to be well, in, you don't you, Kate? You're all about the calming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, typically here you are around my house being completely rude about what I've already got so I'm looking around so in my newly painted hallway which is in this deep cobalt blue but I've got I white ceilings that. and a white staircase well yes you have but you've painted the skirting boards and you've I painted have. all the doors I yes. mean that's another big issue I have with particularly hallways whether you live in a flat or a house there's tends to be lots of doors coming off it and again if you've used a bold color because they're often dark so go dramatic and then you pick out all the doorways along in white it doesn't create that dark dramatic yeah, so space. I, yeah, exactly. So that's why I chose to do the skirts and the doors to match in with the wall colour because I didn't want the eye to be drawn to the wall colour. And we'd actually invested on a really lovely new staircase with my pink Sarah. Yeah. Have I mentioned that before? My amazing piece of It's me that's sighing, so. actually, isn't it? It's not her. It's me that's doing the sighing. So I wanted the focal point and to draw the eye to the staircase. And actually by picking a nice, it isn't pure brilliant white, it's called Perfect White by Zoffany. But I love white with blue. It's a very classic but, colour but combination. But again, it's not just about the white ceiling, is it? Because you've got a very heavily patterned tile, which, which has is a blue white and white in. and black. Yeah. So actually the white ceiling reflects perfectly. I would justify my white ceiling, although clearly I now need to go home and paint it pale pink, but I would justify it until about an hour ago with the fact that my floorboards are all painted white. So there's kind so of then, white at both ends. Yeah. It's when you've got, for example, a wooden floor and a coloured wall and it all tones in and then it's a white ceiling. Bright, and it's like, ceiling. why did you stop there? So it's not perhaps that I'm banning white paint. I would say, think, make a decision. Think about, is white actively the colour you want for your ceiling or your woodwork or would something else look better? And very often with wallpaper, for example, white is absolutely the worst colour. Mm. You want to choose one of the colours in the wallpaper or the patterned sofa 
and do it all in that. And that can look re- you know, really it, fantastic. Match it to the type of white. Yeah. I mean, one place where, and again, I'm looking at my own home, they're all my window frames are white and the window sills are white. Um, and I don't think you have to have white windows. I really don't. But I do use it here because we don't get an awful lot of light. The windows are quite mm. small and it does help maximize the feeling of light coming through the windows by yeah. having them painted white. It's, none of this is a one size fits all. I'm just being devil's advocate. Oh, is that what <laughs> so, it is? Yeah. You're just having an argument with me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, you've got to look at your own house, but that's also what I would always say about all of this is that we would just throw out some ideas give you something to think about and see if actually that might work for you because I've got big Victorian sash windows and actually mine are white because we had them painted when we moved in and it's really hard work painting sash windows. But I look at other houses that I see on Instagram, on Pinterest, in places with, you know, white walls with dark windows and that really frames the view. It looks fantastic. I think all the bottom line, I'm just saying think about it. Think if white is the default colour you want or if you could and do something different. And there has to be different. a reason for yeah. using it. Don't be lazy. There you go. So I completely concur with your argument to ban pure, brilliant white. You concur. I concur. It's very too high contrast a lot of the time and too stark. But uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on if it's not pure, brilliant white, if that's got banned, what are we using instead? What whites are allowed? How do you pick the perfect white? Oh, because that's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's going to be a natural question, isn't it, that people are going to ask? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I think it's really difficult because you're playing into then questions of how light is your room, what's the natural light. If you're in a south-facing room, you will have a very yellow golden light. So, you know, a beige paint or a more yellowy white will look even more yellow. And if you've gone for a sort of cooler shade of white, more brilliant, in a north-facing room where the light is steady and bluish, it will look colder. So like all these colours, it's like back to the choosing the right shade of grey again. You have to play around with it. But I think anything that's just a bit chalky and matte and isn't brilliant. So You can kind of get grey whites and pinky whites and greeny whites. I mean, I personally, even with all my experience in interior design, absolutely hate picking white because it's really difficult and but I think you could basically say if your room overall has a sort of greeny pinky feel to it then you know pick something that goes with that so if you've got a room that's where you've got a blue sofa and blue curtains then I wouldn't necessarily choose a yellowy white because it might just look like you've been smoking a pack of silk in there for 20 years you know I I would argue white is the hardest color to choose so for example when I was doing my hallway it's this lazuli blue, which is a very strong, purpley, rich coloured blue. And I chose a colour called Architects White to go with it, which is quite stark. But yes, I thought, no, exactly. I want them to be a very, I want the contrast to be quite stark. I want these stairs to pop out. But Architects White actually is quite a bluey white. And when that white was put with the blue, oh my God, it was so blue. It was yes, so great. It was horrible. Can, I do think the clue can be in the name because I would automatically think that Architects White would be, be quite really pure stark, yeah. and stark. And you can get now all the paint companies that do names. They're called things like chemise and cotton and chalk. So a bit look for names like that because they're clearly going to be a little bit warmer than something that's called brilliance or marble or pure. But what the interesting thing is, even though I wanted quite a stark white by the time I put it with the blue it, yeah, it too became much. too stark yeah. and I actually ended up going for a much warmer white that actually what isn't the colour I wanted but with the blue by the time the blue had reflected yeah. into that white the problem is as always with picking a paint colour is you can't pick it in isolation yeah. because it's all about what your room is naturally as in the windows and the lights and the doors but also the furniture you're putting, you're putting in there yeah. and you can warm up a cold white and tone down a very beigey one with the colours you put with it. But I, I would look for those sorts of names that when you read the name of the paint, that suggests to you something that might be a bit softer and a bit warmer. Well, nearly two years on and Kate's white paint ban has still not quite come to pass not least in my own house. Sorry, Kate Watson-Smythe, but staying on paint for a moment, perhaps it's time to sow some harmony amongst the discord and recall a time when we did agree for once. And that was when we turned our attention to a very important question indeed in episode six of series one. What should we start with? Let's do designer paint. Is it worth the money? I mean, when I threw this question out to the my Instagram community, I got flooded with 
people's points of view on this. And I think that's upfront, be clear that this is a discussion point here. This is absolutely points of view. Canvassing people we know who work in the industry, who use the paint all the time, what they think. Caveats aside. Caveats is aside. It, is it worth it? Well, first up, I thought, well, let's talk about how much money it is. I mean, what are we talking about? So... If we're using a 2.5 litre tin of paint as our comparable, when we're talking about designer paint brands, so those are, I don't know, Farnball, Little Green, Zoffany, yeah, Mylands, those kind of brands, you're looking at spending upwards of 40 to 45 pounds for a tin of paint. Then, you know, you've got your Dulux and your Crowns middling around the kind of 15, 16, 17 pounds. And then, you know, you've got some trade brands like Leyland's and Johnston's who I think doing a bit of research could be as little as 11 pounds. So as a lover of designer paint, because I've got some, well, I've got a right old mixture in my house, actually. I use trade brands and designer paint brands. I'm going to kick off by defending the designer paint brands and why I think they're worth my money. And I'd say, first of all, the reason why I love a designer paint brand is I like the edit. I like the paint charts. I like the fact that they give you not much more than 100 colours to choose from. Um, Even that's quite a lot. <laughs> but I know what you mean. I mean, I think Dulux at the last count has more than 3,000 colours. I just, I can't even cope with picking the chart out, never mind <laughs> making a decision. I mean, they do sort of blend into one. Um, the paint brands, the British paint brands are absolutely brilliant at giving us a nice clear edit and they know what colours work in this part of the world, the Northern Hemisphere, you know, British paint brands design paint to go up on the walls in the UK. Well, I think it's a really crucial point and it's much more difficult than you think. And that is because in this Northern Hemisphere, we have mostly a cool blue light. And so colours will react to that. You know, you need to think about is that colour going to have a blue light on it or is it going to have a warm golden light on it? And it will change accordingly. So that's a key point to make that, yes, some of those British brands are focused on the Northern Hemisphere and the, the quality of light we have in this country, which is very different from that hard, bright light in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They also as well spend, you know, some of our money uh, that we give them from the paint on some lovely marketing. They produce beautiful, inspirational photography that can inspire. And I love them for that too. I totally buy into all of that, showing us what the new colours are, what the new trends are, producing nice images to help inspire us. So I think that all kind of works as well. Um, the other thing is there is an argument that pigment quality is superior in some of these designer paint brands. I spoke to Mylands about that. I've just used Mylands in my bedroom, actually. I've redone it in a very soft, pale pink called Threadneedle. And they said that when it comes to the sort of so-called designer paint, the more expensive paints, they will use natural pigments. So there are no sort of low-grade fillers or plastic bulking agencies or synthetic colours. They're getting their pigments from rocks and minerals and natural substances, which is why you get that quality with expensive paint where it does change a lot in the light. The colours will change. And also it can almost appear to be a living thing. Some of those colours look almost velvety when the light is shining on them. And that's because they've got so many different colours in them, which go so to make up. Much it's greater. a depth of colour. And, you know, to pick up on that point, if you look at a grey pavement, it's not actually grey. If you stop and look closely, then it's, well, it's got, got bits of chewing gum in it for a start, uh, isn't you, it? Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> find a bit with no chewing gum. Look around the chewing gum or even assess the quality of the colour of the chewing gum. But there is pink, there's yellow, there's bits of black, there's green and blue all sorts of colours in, in a road or a pavement. And that's going to make up grey, which is one of the reasons why grey is such a complicated colour to get right, because it's got so much in it. And I think expensive paint brands will claim that they put more pigment in them and more layers of pigment, more colours going to make up that one shade, which 
means you get a fabulous quality of colour also plays into the nightmare of how do you get the right shade because it will change according to the time of day. But I think, you know, that's a lovely quality to have and that's when you need to put your tester pot of paint, not on the wall, but on a sheet, a large sheet of paper so that you can then just tack it up on the wall with masking tape and then move it around the room for different parts of the day. And I should point out that, that Sophie is now staring at me quite ferociously because last time she came to my house, I had quite a lot of pink paint samples <laughs> painted directly onto the wall and she was completely horrified. Schoolboy error. Um, Schoolboy school <laughs> error. Um, and also kind of couldn't quite be bothered to find a piece of paper, but I have now yeah, since. Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah, <laughs> I've done more paint samples on bits of paper uh, since. And dutifully <clears> moved <throat> them around the room, have you? Well, yeah, ish. <laughs> Well, no, picking up on your point about the the pigment and the kind of quality of the pigment, I was chatting to David Mottishead, who's the MD of the Little Green Paint Company. And I don't even know whether I'm allowed to broadcast this or whether this was a completely like disclosed conversation, but I'm going to share it anyway, because that's what this whole podcast is about. (laughs) Sorry, David. Sorry, David. Um, He was sort of telling me that the very saturated colours within the Little Green range are absolute complete lost leaders. They hemorrhage money on those colours. He said that his atomic red has got as much pigment as the Ferrari paint colour has. It's that deep. And he said, but the good news for them is, is they don't sell very much of it. People use it as an accent. I then did tell him that my son's bedroom is painted on all four walls and he gasped at how much money that must have cost him. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, luckily I'm in a minority. Um, and then obviously the majority of the paint they sell is the very pale off-whites and things like that. And that's how they balance it as a, as a paint brand. It's definitely true that there will be more layers of pigment in a more expensive paint. And Mylands, for example, have a finish called Marble Matte, which has a very slight sheen in it uh, so it's a little bit more wipeable and cleanable and that has Carrara marble dust in it. That sounds terribly posh. Doesn't it? Oh my but what they've said dust in it. <laughs> Such dinner party talk that is. What they said was that it gives it A, a lovely finish and a, and a nice sort of sheen to it but also because marble's really tough so it makes it quite scrubbable. God, they did their sales pitch on you. You were right, old treat. I thought, for it. I thought it was amazing. My whole house is now painted in, in Carrara marble, marble dust. Um, it's interesting, though, talking about finish, because I think that's, again, where we um, see the designer paint brands um, flourishing. Now, Fair and Ball, I think, adopted this very early on, doing their complete matte. Chalky finish. Chalky finishes, yeah. which um, they jumped on right early on. Yeah. And everybody really loved until they realised that all those sticky fingerprints start showing up. Don't come off, You know, you can only no. really use them in quite precious rooms and actually then they brought out their contemporary emulsion for more high traffic areas and more sort of... You do need something with a slight sheen in it. So for halls and landings, um, because you can wipe it down. That chalky stuff looks gorgeous, but only if you're not going to touch it. So I've just done my hallway in the most jaw to the floor gorgeous, lazuli, deep, rich, Eve's Klein style blue by Zoffany. And I swear it is literally humming in colour. It's an electric blue and it's really deep and it seriously resonates I love it I've used a similar color before in a scheme um honest indigo from dulux is a real color match it's an also a really lovely color but it didn't quite have that depth of honestly it really really does hum in color it's delicious but my goodness it's already marking Chalky finish. Yeah. Were we talking about schoolboy errors? I believe yeah. you've accused... Have you made one? Yeah, I think I... Well, or I'm going to be redecorating every six months, <laughs> which apparently is what... I mean, I've spoken to decorators who have some, you know, high-end clients who decorate in some of these chalky finish brands like Fair and Ball, and they literally have to go back to the house... And people are happy to pay for it, go back and redecorate every six months. It's really that difficult look. that argument from from a number of different levels so one just on the expensive paint versus cheaper paint I would say if you are someone that likes to redecorate all the time and you do it yourself then that can be a really affordable and cheap way to bring in a new look and perhaps it's not worth spending hundreds of pounds on a really expensive paint if you're going to get rid of it you know in six months to a year's time so that's one argument and the other is you know we need to dispose of paint tins responsibly and getting rid of all that leftover paint. So there are now more brands which are eco paints and made with sort of, you know, less synthetic like, ingredients. Um, Earthborn and Paint the Town Green. And there's one called EICO. I don't yeah. even know how to, ICO. Yeah. To, I don't know how to pronounce it. But I think that's also something you have to think about. It's perhaps not quite responsible. Not just all on the look, to, but yes. being a bit responsible too. When I put this out to Instagram... 
I did get quite a lot of decorators commenting oh, did, on this ooh. very topic. Do you want to know what they had to but say? But it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's always, designer paint has always divided professional decorators with some of them. They hate it partly because of the chalky finish and they don't like the no, way it No, do you know what? They, basically, what the general feedback that came back from the decorators was, with certain, not all designer paint brands, but Farron Ball came up a lot. And they're not saying they don't like it, but they're just saying they have to price to do an extra coat against other paint brands, just because the consistency's thinner. Yeah. So we know Farron Ball use quality pigments in their paint, and I'm not sure what their argument is for making it a thinner paint. Maybe this goes towards the finish or the end result. But I know myself, whenever I've called in a variety of different paint brands and I do my little swatches, the Farron Ball paint is significantly thinner than the other brands. So that's just something to consider. It's an expensive paint and you need more of it potentially to get the coverage. So that came up quite significantly. Across the board, you know, your big hitters like Dulux seem to be, you know, I speak to a lot of decorators and they're always happy. It's very consistent, isn't it? We're not talking about the quality of the paint here. We're talking about the performance as in how does it go on and how many coats do you need? We can't really have this conversation without addressing the colour matching. You know, so a lot yeah, of people will yeah. say, I can't afford or I don't want to pay that much for that designer brand. What's wrong with me going to a cheaper brand and getting it matched? Yeah. So that, so I had lots of tips on that too. Yeah. Lots of disappointment with matching, particularly Farron Ball. You see, this is where I think Farron Ball are really quite clever because their colours are... They're so complex. They're really difficult to and copy. And they're really yeah. specific. I don't buy a lot of Farnball for myself personally because they're just not my colour palette. I like colours. It's too more, muted for you, A little it? bit yeah. too muted for yeah. me. But I appreciate that if you're trying to create that look, they're really sophisticated. Yeah. And they're really well thought out and they are they are hard to match. So you could go along and try and match to someone like Dulux, but essentially they're just going to try and get the closest match to their existing 3,000 colours. They're not actually matching it to the... I didn't know that. See, I think that's really interesting. I thought they were creating a bespoke paint, especially for me, that I'd taken along with my Farrow and Ball card, but they're not. They're going through their 3,000 colours and more and yeah. picking the nearest one. So you're not getting actually a colour match from that. You you're are just getting, getting a, yes. Now then you've got Valspar who's selling B&Q. They say they will colour match to the molecule. But again, you know, you're not getting the same finish. You're not getting that, like you're saying, the play on light, the pigmentation. The and that finish. comes from the natural pigments, which you can't replicate. No, you so can't So that's replicate. the thing I think maybe you are making that decision that with an expensive paint, you will get all those depths of pigments, the quality of the light. You can't replicate that. So you have to make a choice. I mean, I find rule of thumb actually... I like to splash out on a designer paint when it is a very specific colour. Usually for me, it is those really rich, bright colours like the atomic reds and the lazuli mm. blue. So I'm really getting that depth of pigmentation. And then if I'm looking for an off-white, I'm happily skipping off to Dulux. Lots of people have said that to me as well, that they might have a more expensive paint in the sitting room or in the bedroom somewhere where it really, where the colour is kind of the focal point of the room, but for hall stairs and landings, which they might just be doing in white or ceilings. <gasps> white hallway stairs and landing. How could they? Got one. <laughs> well, we're getting on to hallways later on this podcast. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that later. Um, but yes, more affordable, cheaper paint for those areas which where it isn't all about the colour. So, in summary, is design a paint worth the money? Are we in agreement with this, Kate? Because I kind of think it is. I'm not sure we're often in agreement, but <laughs> I think in this case, yes. for my opinion, is design a paint, it is worth my money because I like that finish and that depth of colour that you get from it. Slightly uncomfortable feeling that we're actually agreeing on something. Well, I'm, I'm sure it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> And lo, it came to pass that we were very soon bickering and disagreeing again. You know, I tell myself that listeners enjoy it when we argue because it means we represent a broad range of differing tastes and opinions and that we are demonstrating that there are no rules, no good or bad taste, only what works for you. And one woman's design crime is another's treasured diamante panther. I tell myself that's why you like it. But I'm starting to think it's just because you're a bloodthirsty lot who like a good fight. So come on then, Kate, design crimes. Have you thought of any? Well, you might not like this. Why not? Well, we're here 
in your lovely sitting room. We are. Let me. And I've just made. In you your house, your very big house you. in the country. You've made. It was a good lunch. Thank you. However, <laughs> oh, I'm not saying this is a design crime, right? But this has just popped into my head. You've got a new telly. Yeah, I love my new telly. It's quite big. Yeah, and what? Big tellies. Big tellies dominating the room. Design I'm not saying crime. that yours is. Mm. Oh my god, you so are. That, well, do you know that telly yes. is only 49 inches? That's massive. <laughs> I wanted a 55. Do you know, I wanted a 55 inch. I was in Richer Sounds. And to be fair, in Richer Sounds, you've kind of got on display, you've got a few 49 inch, quite a few 55 inch. And it's a diagonal measurement. It's isn't a diagonal it? measurement, yeah. this is. And in inches, like seriously. But anyway, the whole thing's quite bluffing, isn't it? It's just, I suppose that's just the way they've also done it. But then they also had some like. 60 inch plus tellies in there which That's like are the cinema. massive I think mine's 27 and I thought I <laughs> what <laughs> I mine's about that I think my computer monitor's 27 in my office oh no it must be bigger than that <laughs> no. Must be bigger than that. So you've got your fitting in a little alcove, which is quite clever, yes. isn't it? So you've had so your limited with space. Whereas, to be fair, this living room is, I think it's seven and a half meters by five and a half meters. This is a good size living room, right? Yeah. And you know, the rule of thumb is. Is there a rule? There is. There is a little bit of a rule. Are you going to hit me with some numbers, Stat Queen? <laughs> well, I think I've just been made redundant. <laughs> They say roughly one, one and a half to two and a half times the size of your diagonal measurement screen. So if I was, I think we're roughly about 10 feet away from where I'm sitting, where you're sitting. I could have up to 60 inches apparently, but I've only got 49. So there you go. It's quite a modest. So it's telly, quite isn't small. It? Turns out it looks pretty big to me. <laughs> no, to the, be fair, I think it is big. And what's really funny is when I rang my husband from the shop and I said, "Oh, forty nine or fifty five. He went, "Oh, go for the smaller." I hate big tellies, and that's <laughs> usually it's the other yeah, way it around. Yeah, it is. the other way around. In, it's not. In fact, it's not necessarily the size. It's what you do with it. For now, for now, <laughs> it's about what often happens, and this is the case in my sitting room, is that all the telly points and wires and plugs are diagonally opposite the door and so you open the door and opposite your sofa yeah. but you open the door into the room and the first thing you see well, is the really television common, and so that's that's not why my sitting room is dark but my sitting room is painted dark so that the television is hopefully not the first thing you see and to be like fair to you exactly to be fair to you in your room your television is on the same wall as your door so you do have to be sitting on the sofa mm. as i now am to see the gigantic monolith big. in the corner. No, it is quite big. And the unfortunate thing is, obviously, I've decorated with quite soft colours here. We've got the pale pinks. And we've got this big black box. That's the unfortunate thing about tellies, isn't it? Is from a colour point of view, they don't, they don't blend in. But the other thing, and actually I was looking at, I think, Emily Henson, Life Unstyled on Instagram the other day. And she was saying, you know, when was the last time you saw a television in an interior design magazine? Mm, we always, you know, yeah. we photograph around them. We don't put them in. And she said, quite rightly, they're in sitting rooms and that's quite often what your sitting room is for. So, yes. you know, why hide them? Stop trying to pretend they're not there, but, you know, maybe decorate around them. So do have books near decorate them or around. pictures around oh, okay. them. I thought you were going to, like, put a garland or some fairy lights around them. Then You'll be doing that next time. What she's saying is just accept the, it as part of the room in. and build them in. Well, and I actually think that's very sensible advice. That's what advice. we've done in Mum's Annex, actually, because she's got this open plan space. We've built a bookcase and the TV fits within it like a yeah. picture. Yeah. And that was a made-to-measure piece of furniture that it slotted within. What do you think of that? Is it the... Um, I want it. The, the frame. frame. I want one. Because oh, I did consider one of those. You see, but yours price. is across the corner, so that wouldn't work. Well, that's why I didn't go so for it So it wouldn't look end, like a picture. Because I thought it would look weird having a picture I the think corner. they're amazing. And I have had a couple of clients who've had them. And they mm. do look brilliant. So I did what, go into just, one... Just to explain to people who don't know what the frame yeah. TV is. It's a television that when it's switched off, it has a image that looks like a painting but you can choose you can choose or, the image which as is well on all the time but hardly yeah. uses any energy it's not like a bright yeah. light is it it's quite so a, it's like a picture so i went to this client's house very very big house in west london and i was looking at this 
picture on her kitchen wall and contemplating to myself as to whether she actually had a Banksy on the wall. Oh, brilliant. Could have been possible. And then her kids came in and she flicked a switch and it was Teletubbies. And <laughs> and I was completely blown away by it. But, but it, oh. you know, you couldn't tell. I thought it was really impressive. I think there's a box that goes underneath that's quite small that you could put in a shelf or on the table or behind it. It's quite discreet. That's where all the sort of workings are. But I think they're a brilliant idea. I would totally have one. They're you quite would. expensive. Yeah, I would. Because I have it in the alcove yes, and I've got work. pictures and you could hang it on, on the, the other wall, alcove. You? you could hang it on the wall. And then it would look like you hadn't got a telly in the space yeah. at all. I think they're quite clever. So there we go. A framed mm. TV coming to a madhouse near you soon. <laughs> well, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, yeah, and it's goodbye so from is Sophie's that, big telly. Is that, is that too big for you then? Am I in design crime territory with my 49-inch television? Couldn't watch the news on a telly that big. Imagine the size of Trump coming out of your screen on that. <laughs> be utterly horrifying. I think that's enough. I think you're in design crimes. So you think he's only 27 inches? <laughs> <laughs> that was July 2019. Remember that? Episode two of series four. It feels like a different world. But Kate and I are still here, still bickering and still helping you get the most out of your home. And boy, have we all needed that this year. So thank you for sticking with us, for writing such lovely reviews and for sharing your fabulous style surgery questions. Yes, thank you so much. And we will be back in the new year with a new series. Till then, do keep in touch on Instagram where I'm mad about the house and my utterly fabulous co-host who I do sort of really love is I can't remember your name sorry <laughs> Sophie Robinson Interiors and of course there's the Great Indoors podcast Facebook group and it's all getting jolly festive over on Facebook Rebecca Kerry oh my gosh giving us all the squeals of delight with her Christmas plank and I'm just going to drop that there I'll probably pin it to the top of the Facebook page so you have to go over and find out what I'm talking about because it is it's not a design crime it's just design divine I absolutely love it and then as a small gesture of our huge appreciation Kate and I have decided to have a little Christmas gifty giveaway we're giving away a online course bold brave and beautiful interiors with my Christmas gift box and Kate what's your bundle I'm giving away a couple of my books and also the books we've reviewed in this series. So that's Mad About the House, books one and two. Home for the Soul by Sarah Bird. House of Print by Molly Moan. And Everything by Abigail Ahan. So if you fancy that, then keep an eye on our Instagram posts on the day of download, which is the 3rd of December, and all the details will be there. But for now, thanks to Kate Taylor of Feast Collective and to Tom Brignall, who mixes it all so beautifully. And the biggest thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you all in the great indoors. Happy Christmas! <laughs>